and I think that other recognition that you choose what you can and be accountable to what you can do. And if you're doing less than that or more than that, it's not good. And that also is a flow to be present with it. That's a flow and that's a word. Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We're a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and overall curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. I'm Sage, ESI's architect. For those of you who may just be coming into the world of Emergent Strategy, or just as a brief you know, reminder, Emergent Strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. In short, how do we tackle the big things from how we're moving every single day? Today's guest is Makani Tembo. I could start with, a bi- I mean, I'm, I started reading your bio, Makani, and immediately got hemmed up because there's so much more I want to say. But what I'll start with is Makani Temba is the chief strategist of Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. Makani is an author, movement badass, strategist, organizer, philosopher, um, one of my favorite people to be in conversation (laughs) with. And I am so incredibly grateful. Thank you for saying yes, Makani. Thank you so much. We start our podcast with really just sort of a check-in. Like, Makani, how how are you right now? How am I right now? You know, um, I am, I am good. I am, I feel like I'm in, in a lot of different places at the same time. <laughs> okay, magical. Right, right. Because I watched, my name is Polly Murray, the documentary about mm-hmm. Polly Murray, mm-hmm. and the January 6th hearings. And so. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a combo. <laughs> right. So that, I think, sums up how I'm in different places. <laughs> That actually feels like the the right place for the conversation for us to have, like all of those things. (laughs) So thank you for saying yes to our our invitation to to be on the podcast here. And and part of how this all happens is Adrian, Mia and I get together and we create this list like of like our the conversations of folks that we want to talk to and we're like that we feel like by looking at the work, the way you move in the world, that to us we're like, oh, Makani is emergent strategist. <laughs> like that, we're like, oh yeah. And when I uh, think about your work over the course of decades, is um, the way fractals show up, or the way even listening to you, the way you're talking about the relationships between things and adaptation, intentional adaptation. And I want to get into that specifically with you around intentional, because I feel to me, you are one of the most intentional people in movement that we have today. Like we're really clear about why we're making shifts and then creating more possibilities, right? Like how, what is being born. Those are the things I see just in, by being in your cipher and in your energy and aware of your work, even before we met, does that resonate for you? Do you think of yourself in relationship to emergent strategy? 
Well, I definitely think of myself in relationship to emergent strategy. I, I think that it's it's an important articulation, right, of of what many of us have been trying to do and think about. And I feel honored, right? Because just that's one thing. It's like, oh, I hope I'm that cute. Yeah, I want to be that. <laughs> so it feels <laughs> aspirational um, to be in that place and to free our brains, right? To be in that place because there is so much, right? Mm -hmm. So much that we're working through in order to be free enough to step into emergence. Yeah. One of the ways I quote you most, and I don't know if you remember this, uh, but we were at a gathering called Constellations, put together by the Center for Cultural Production. And in our small group, you said, uh, freedom is individual, but liberation is collective. And when I hear you reference, like, to be free enough, that to me speaks to this, this idea of, like, the relationship between the individual and the collective and how liberation can move. Okay. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was such an interesting conversation on so many levels. Um, yes, definitely remember it. And definitely think a lot about this relationship between liberation and freedom. Because it feels like one of the big questions that we have to grapple with in our work and that a lot of people are, are conflating them, <laughs> you know, Yep. Uh, yeah, I, and I feel like, yeah, they're conflating them. And and then there are ways in which as as somebody in my 60s and have been an organizer a, lo a fairly long time, you know, more than 40 years of my life and, and probably, yeah, maybe 50 really because I started pretty young, that, yeah, this that tension between what we do collectively to hold the container in which we can be free and how much individual freedom, um, not versus, but in this dance with what we have to do collectively to build these worlds, to make these worlds that can hold us and, and us be accountable to each other. I really appreciate the, the us be accountable to each other part. Cause I think there's a, there feels like a question in a lot of different places um, around how much difference can one formation or one collective hold inside it, right? Like, and so when I hear you, I think about that from like an individual, from from sort of a mm, societal governance sort of space, like absolutely, and inside our smaller formations as well right yes and it's also about how we lean into the sort of both physiological and spiritual and and sort of cognitive like all these levels in which we we are who we are how we lean into the fact that we are actually interconnected that we're actually part and parcel of the same thing which is a hard thing to wrap our brain around, right? Because there's ways in which people try to leverage what's uniformity and say, well, you know, you need to just get in line and 
not think about all these ways in which you're unique and different or have these different needs and all of that. And that's not what I'm talking about. But in all these infinite variations of who we are, um, a tree, you know, a black woman or whatever, you know, that that there is a there's an energy that we're all a part of. And that's also a dance, right? That dance between leaning into that and recognizing that so that we understand that what happens to trees is related to what happens to us, it's related to what happens to each other. And living in a world where we're both struggling for recognition of our cultures and who we are as these amazing individual beings, but also leaning into the compassion and the connection and the recognition, really it's recognition of who we are and, and who we are to each other. That's a big part of it too. Oh, I, I, whew, you got me percolating. You have me percolating. Like, I love when these you aren't percolate. Even, these aren't even the questions I've, <laughs> that I wrote down yet. <laughs> um, because part of what, what you're offering is making me think about like the, mm, the liberatory practices, not uniformity under a different system, nor though is the liberatory practice simply all being unique and different and no accountability to each other or anything, but really like the, the pendulum sort of hanging center. Like if you're dousing and you're looking for a yes or no, like it's the center of both of those. Is what it feels like we, we might be interested in trying to work towards. Yes, that's true. And also it's actually, it's the center in some ways, but it's also the flow. It's, mm. you know, because there are many ways that capitalism kind of disrupts. And, you know, it's like this sort of racial capitalism, patriarchy sort of disrupts our flow as beings, right? Like it's, it's like inconvenient, you know, you get a lot of cheap stuff you wouldn't have in your house. Otherwise, I mean, there's all kinds of inconveniences, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Besides like the, the, like the bad oppression and the other, other things, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not a particularly healthy system, but one of the things is that it really disrupts our flow, our capacity to kind of be in the present moment and pay attention to what's needed in the moment, Right. <laughs> And, and to be present with one another, it's like, it's very difficult for us to do that. And so this idea of like, what, what is needed in the moment, right? Like to have your hand on a tree and be like, I, like, this feels so good for me to like be touching this tree. And I'm like, mm-hmm. like to be in the green or to look over um, some landscape or be at, a, at the ocean, you know, like that, there's something that feeds you that mm-hmm. you're in this moment and there's something when you're with people that, you know, like we were in Detroit together, I felt so nourished, right? We were with people mm-hmm. that had particular kinds of energies and it's not even so much of, I mean, and you swing, you flow mm-hmm. to respond to the energy when you can be present, right? Whether that's like a butterfly coming by, you're going to be a certain way with a butterfly that you're going to be with a three-year-old, that you're going to be with your mama, then you're going to be with someone, you know, that's on a bus who just bumped you, you know, right? Mm-hmm, and while they're mm-hmm. sitting down. And so that thing in movement, and I feel like that in some ways is a part of what it means to be in emergence, right? Is that we're paying mm-hmm. attention. We're present. We're aware of the past and the conditions and the story. And we're also taking that information, but being 
as aware as we can be of what is in front of us, the people who are like freaking out, we're like, we can see them like in the meeting, like tuning out or somebody's like crying or <laughs> like something is, <laughs> things are happening, right? Or someone is like looking at their phone anxiously because there's something they're worried about. And it's like our ability to tune in and to organize based on how we pay attention, like that's the best organizing, right? That's mm. our best work when we're in flow. And so anything that we can do to like build that capacity, to strengthen our connection, to be still enough, to actually get the data, get the download, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to be in that quiet and be like, oh, that's what's next. Because I don't think we can be fully emergent without like, yes, having those skills and capacities, that understanding of the past and being sort of fully present to that. that some people might call the Oracle, the, the one, the spirit. Akashic records. Is, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the flow, I feel like I, I really appreciate what you're talking about around the past and its relationship to the present. Because I think one of the things that is, I'm going to say having a resurgence, but I think it's just really making present the loss of a particular, naming of a particular political lineage or a political education that I think plays a role in your ability to be present, right? Like your ability to be aware and what it makes one aware of in a particular moment, like in the present, right? So one of the questions that we've been in with Emergent Strategy and with a lot of folks on the podcast is like, can you talk a little bit about your your political lineage? Like if you name it, what helps build a, a Makani Temba lens? Like if I was wearing some beautiful sunglasses that were designed by Makani Temba that helped adjust my gaze to be aware of what's happening, where, you know, what would those be? Oh, I love that. You know, I was just... Um rereading one of my heroes informing my forming whatever this lens is, this view, this way, Stuart Hall, who talks about how you shouldn't think of things as having origins. They only have genealogies. And I love that because it's like, yeah, nobody invents anything. <laughs> everything, yes. everything is built on what's come before. And if you don't understand that, then you're lying to yourself or somebody, right? And, <laughs> and I, you know, and I've been thinking about that a lot. And I, like I said, I just got finished watching the documentary about Polly Murray and really reflecting on how much of her work and life informed mine without me even knowing it. Like mm. that was part of the gift of watching. Um, yes. The documentary, but I would say, you know, I was born in 1960. And so that in and of itself, right, to, to be a kid in the 60s in Harlem, you know, in Washington Heights, New York, it felt like the blackest possible place in the universe. Now, of course, you know, I went to the continent since then and other things, but, you know, at that point, at the time, at that time, Harlem felt like, the blackest possible place. I mean, we had like, you know, a Santa Claus and a red, black and green jumpsuit who would like show up in a Cadillac <laughs> and give it, I mean, it was like 
hella, 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 hella black, right? And, you know, and people would walk down the street and be like, you know, what time is it? And someone would say nation time. And, And I mean, as a kid, how could you just not be enthralled? I mean, that was... I guess how people felt like when they watched Black Panther and were in Wakanda and why they went to the movie like seven or eight times. But I mm-hmm. got to kind of grow up in a mini version of that with its problems, right? Mm-hmm. With its issues, you know, still, you know, family who were shooting up and all the things, but a sense that Black people could do anything and be anything. And then I also come out of you know, my mom's from Jamaica. I have Cuban-Jamaican parentage on my mother's side. There is a thing about Jamaicans, you know, and I think a lot of Korean folks, you know, that are, they kind of make a way. They kind of, they just really make a way. And I think, I think a lot of Black people and a lot of people of color do it generally in all kinds of ways. But there is a particular brand of that, you know, that Jamaicans hold that also, I think, shaped my politics before I was even a grown-up, right? That I came into that. So then what I got drawn to, the idea of, of, you know, what people call Black nationalism, which is really just about safe Black space that's governed and controlled by Black people in the interest of Black people, which is not about anything exclusionary, anything like that, but just the idea that um, you would have this kind of space where the Black joy and black power would be centered. That mm-hmm. I was drawn to that, and and so that was important to me. I was also drawn to because my mother was a feminist, still is a feminist, so it was always clear to me gender was a thing. My mother was very much an active in protests and and all kinds of things. She took us to protests as kids around the range of things and this idea that people coming together can make a difference. So I knew, I knew that I was going to be an organizer. I probably made my mind up probably by six or seven that um, I might be a lawyer too. I might be something else, but whatever I did, I knew I had to be an organizer. And then I was introduced through family members, but also because my, my grandmother was also a very serious reader around metaphysics, but also like Marx and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of other things. And so she introduced me to Emmett Fox, and she was also a big Reverend Ike person. And, you know, say what you want to about Reverend Ike, and for folks who don't know, he's like one of the the architects of positive thinking for Black people and really anybody. But, you know, Reverend Ike was like, don't let conditions dissuade you from whatever it is you dream. It's like racism mm. is a thing, but you can. And and, and I mean, there, I used to laugh at it as a kid. I'd be like, wow, this is a whole lot. But I think that combination of that Caribbean can do whatever there needs to be done and that Reverend Ike plus that Black Power moment plus, you know, all these things. And then what was great about reading and sort of getting engaged with like Marx and Mao and, you know, George Jackson and Angela Davis and Asada Shakur and and, and then also third world feminism, right? The works mm-hmm. of women who are writing in India and on the continent and learning more about the world and then getting to work more globally and meet people at, at conferences and all these things as part of my work and my college organizing that I came into a kind of an identity and a lens as 
a part of the third world, a, a third world feminist mm-hmm. who believed in black power as part of it, who felt like the patriarchy and capitalism was damaging <laughs> to the world and to life. And just trying to find my way through all of those philosophers from Hegel to Habermas to whoever, right? Just being really um, thirsty for to make sense. And then, then there came a point, and I think this is where I still am, where I wanted it to be practical and make sense. It's like you have all this theory, you understand all these things. What does it mean for you to apply it? What does it what does it actually look like for us to get free? And so that intentionality and that sort of quest took me to um, I couldn't afford to go to graduate school. So I decided that my graduate school was going to be my job. So I was going to pick jobs that was things I wanted to learn so I could both get paid and learn things at the same time. So brilliant. So well, brilliant. It's, it's also so Jamaican in a way. It's like, you know, you ain't got time for that, right? So, but it was so, anyway, it just did bring me to, to this place where I am now to continually try to learn and fuse and, and practice in collaboration and collectively with others. I do believe that you are you are walking praxis, right? Like the, the, wow, so I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I realize there's one thing I should also say that's super important in this, and that is art, visually, dance, music, all of those things. I draw so much inspiration and analysis. Um, not just, I mean, I feel like there's so much work that are really like scripture for the movement. You know, there are paintings that I can stare at forever and draw things that are important for us to understand. And I am deep into funk. Um, and I felt like that indeed also is a script part of the scripture. You know, jazz, Coltrane, Miles, Ornette Coleman, and what I understand about dissonance as music, like all of those things are part of that's part of my lens. I would say, or whatever that means. Oh, I love that. I, I am. I, in my twenties, I was part of a sort of black nationalist space. And I really believe though, I don't know that I truly felt my connection to the continent until I heard Osibisa. Yes. And then was like, Oh, them's my folk. Oh, that's, that's, Oh, that's me. And I'm them like, Oh, okay. Wait a minute. That funk, that, that, Hmm undescribable sound that that moved the marrow in my bones that felt so familiar yes like it's like yeah you were home I was Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I can be there and put on a record and be with them right and be with them and and not feel different than feel right there Mm -hmm. right um, I really appreciated the arc you took us through in the sharing of like these these sunglasses, Makani Temba lenses are fly, right? They're so fly, right? <laughs> they are, um, um, because it was a really beautiful arc in in what you shared from sort of our initial like this importance of awareness and embodiment, 
And then you're naming like all the things that have sort of poured into you or that you have gravitated towards or pulled on, um, learned that are a part of what it means to be aware and embodied in the present and to not skip one step for the other, right? Like not to choose one or the other, not to skip over one or the other, like to be in theory um, without practice, to be in spirit. So there's something around the, the relationship of all of these things that feels like you hold very clearly. And I want to pull on a thread because part of our recent conversation was around narrative strategy. And what I'm also really curious to, to be in conversation with you about is around the way you see economic systems function in work, which are often in our movements like two different spaces, right? Are often feel like folks are talking about, you know, dialectical materialism over here, like economics, and then over here, we're storytellers, or, you know, like, there's a, you know, and I wonder how you see the intersection of them, or do you see a gap that we should be thinking about and filling around the relationship of the cultural relationship between those pieces? I think that's a great question. You know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, an economy is just a set of relationships, it's all it is. Mm-hmm. And that there's ways in which this quote unquote Western education and put that in quotes too, because it's not really education, but this indoctrination <laughs> that we come through that tries to make everything separate and, mm-hmm. and make it out of reach and make people believe that they're not smart enough to engage in a conversation about a thing, which is really their lives right? <laughs> you mm. know? Yes. And, um, and one of the things I love about traveling globally and, and working with and, and being around folks who are organizing in other countries, especially is when people abandon that and they, people will be surprised. Well, oh my God, they're talking about the economy. It's like, why wouldn't they? That's like, they live it. Like they have to go, like, you gotta go to the store. You gotta eat. You gotta make sure that uh-huh. people are, in relationship and doing all the things like why wouldn't people be having conversations about how it can be organized for their good. And so that idea of refusing to accept the separation of it and the, Mm. and the placing it, like we're going to put it on the shelf. So only certain people can look at it. And then our people, I mean, part of what our people have gone through is so much trauma you know, they, they go to school and most of our folks are just beat up by teachers, by, you know, just by the system itself that tells you mm-hmm. that um, this is not really for you. You're just going to get through it. And then once you get out. And so I say all that to say, obviously, that I think that we can step into our understanding of the economy in a much more inclusive way. You know, Mm. dialectical materialism is actually a pretty straightforward idea. You know, it's like, there are concrete things that happen, right? (laughs) Hence material, right? Mm -hmm. And we observe those things and we learn about those things and the things that don't work for us, we try to do something different and we learn something and we shift it. Like, bam, that's kind of it in a way, right? <laughs> I love that. And it's good to have books about it and you can get deeper and you can think about it. 
But the truth of the matter is most of what we're going to have to figure out about the economy is not written in a book. It's good to read it and understand like what's the undergirding philosophies and what makes an economy. But with our folks, we have to just do the work and say, guess what? This, the economy is us. Like we can mm-hmm. create one. Now, now there's also the economy is them and we're in it. And there's ways in which we are oppressed by it. And they're trying to tell us that it's our fault. So we want to disconnect from the matrix. And even as we're oppressed by it, at least be aware that it's not, you know, this immigrant over here or that, you know, or this person over here, but, but that these are a set of relationships that people have organized and that they use the police and they use the schools and they use all these, these systems to hold it in place. And most importantly, they use our imagination. They limit Mm -hmm. our imagination. They limit our thinking. They tell us there's only one way to do things. And that's this way where we compete and hurt each other and, and, and don't care for each other. And that if we do it the other way, we'll die. (laughs) Right. But if we do it their way, we die. So I feel like that's really the conversation. It's like, how do we help people step into an awareness that this is a game in a way that's been rigged? And even though people understand that, then the next step is sort of like, then, and there's something we can do about it because that's the part where they're in our heads. Yeah. And they tell us, well, you know what? Guess what? There's nothing you can do. This is the best you can hope for. No, I, I, you got me thinking like if we play it their way, we die. If we do nothing, we are playing it their way, we die. That's right. And if we play it our way, we don't know what will happen yet. So it's a, like when you're talking about the imagination, that fear of the unknown of what will happen, if we can imagine multiple possibilities beyond the you die, then this sense of what's possible, what, what is our ability to, to lean into, what's our, our power, feels like it's in reach. It, it is, and it's important, but also part of what's happening in the, and part of the ways our imagination is being policed around it. And really, I want to just shout out Hunter Adams, who is an amazing brother, Black neuroscientist, who I'm, I'm talking about his work right now. And he, one of the things he talks about is why there's so many zombie shows on TV mm. and this idea of building in our brains the scary unknown so that we literally have zombies in our heads that police us around. Like, we're like, okay, well, you know, we can't be going too far out because you go too far out, you come you know, across mm-hmm. the craziness, the things you can't imagine because it's just so few imagery in our world in our in the ways like going on netflix it's not a whole bunch of of spaces where you can go well i'm going to watch something about the beautiful you know world that that's going to happen when we all come together and in fact a lot of times when there's any kind of organizing involved it's either very tactical in the most narrow way or the organizers are maligned as you know sort of divisive, you know, don't care about other people, right? 
-hmm. So there's all kinds of ways they police our imagination around change that make it hard for us to let go of a story that if we veer, it's going to be worse. It's as if culturally we're being hardwired to, well, it's, it's the matrix, right? Like going back to like thinking about film, right? That we're hardwired for dystopia. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, a, I think of it as like an electric fence. We start to wander and be like, well, what would happen if we left this thing? It's like, ah, nope, buzz, right? It's going to be dystopia. It's going to be this. We better get guns. We better, you know, and gun sales are going through the roof right now because mm-hmm. people, that's what people are afraid of. They're like, and people literally talk about a zombie apocalypse, right? People talk about that. Like it's more likely to happen than us coming into a place of love, care, and connection. Like, think about that. Okay, folks, I've just been gently checked. Yes, it's true. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I do just... talk about zombie apocalypse a lot. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. Like, I do think about it's, that more it's than the possibility. It's in our brains. It's, it's some, yeah. but I mean, and I thought it was interesting, Hunter, talking about how much it's being kind of put out there. And I think of it, yeah, it's like that electric third rail that when we start to cross over too far into the place of, you know, whatever, it's like, nope. <laughs> what do you th- what, what do you think this programming means for movement and our movements? Right? Like, how do you see this playing out? And what would be, what do we need to extract, unearth, decolonize from like all the, to believe, to shift that, right? Like to shift the belief that we're not, and I appreciate something you said earlier. It's not that racism doesn't exist. It's not like we're talking about ignoring the conditions, right? But our lens and our imagination on what we believe is possible if it is shaped towards dystopia through through the hegemony, through the cultural, all the offerings through movies and all of that. What does that mean about how we're moving in movement and what what shifts, what adaptations might be important for us to make? You know, I think that's a great question. I do want to say, I feel like as a movement, to the extent that that's a singular word, it's probably more plural in my mind, and I'm sure yours, that um, we're probably the most imaginative we've been. Mm, And it's just such amazing work happening. I mean, stuff you're doing, stuff other folks are doing, that's just beautiful, right? And, And there's art being created because I feel like art is the first place we imagine ourselves free. And mm-hmm. because, you know, it's like, what other experience do you have, <laughs> right? A book, a movie, yes. a painting. Uh, at least that's how it was for me. So I do want to acknowledge that. I feel like there are people who are leading us through the lens of joy, right? And be like, so what is that? The challenge, though, one of the challenges is that that a lot of times when we imagine ourselves in that sort of beautiful edge or that place, it's more a what we're clearer about is our individual freedom that we're in this place where we're all like free and doing what we want to do. And that's what it's like. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people even go as far as we're in this place where we're connected and that part's lovely and we're just loving on each other. And that's cool too. Right. And I think that this place where we find this dance with freedom and liberation, like, I think the more that we can imagine that we can govern together in peace, that we can govern with love and care and with abundance, and you know, and a new definition of that, obviously, in the 
context of climate crisis. But like the more we think about that and the more we train our both our technical and our sort of cosmic, for lack of a better word, kind of cosmic and metaphysical understanding to like manifesting that. Like what are the problems that are worth tackling to think about? Some of it is about like how we make decisions and some of it is about like how we feed each other. And and there are people who are trying to work through that. And a lot of times in our movement work though, we get stuck at the meeting. Mm -hmm. We get stuck at the level of our interpersonal interactions that feel painful and hard. And then we also get stuck at the level of tactics. And tactics are important, but um, they need to be part of a larger, you know, kind of arc. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like bottom line, the practice that we need to be engaged in is one of working together in groups and bigger and bigger groups to imagine what it looks like on the other end and Mm -hmm. then to literally back up from that, you know, which is what they do in behavior modification, which I learned doing a certain kind of therapy where I start with like, what's my current situation? And then what's my desired situation? And I think about like, what's my experience and what's my, what are my feelings and what are my beliefs and, and assumptions and things like that at each one of these phases. And I plot, I le- I'm told to plot these markers. And I think that's work that we need to do is to actually be like, let's think a little bit about what this looks like on the other side. Like not, re- not just reacting to the dystopia or even, or maybe even saying, here's three scenarios. One's really awful, <laughs> mm-hmm. one's really great, and one's in between, and then plot, like, what do we do? But I think the main thing, yeah, is that our practice, if our practice can get to the point where we can channel that energy around individual joy and freedom into thinking together about what it looks like collectively in terms of liberation and then plotting some milestones and benchmarks that we hold ourselves accountable to, and moving mm-hmm. forward, um, I think that would take us quite a bit. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I feel that. I'm feeling that in my body right now. As this, uh, um, and I'm also hearing your words come back earlier about like economics is relationships, right? Like, and so again, it, it feels like it's coming up again, like shaping change is thinking about relationship like this like this core of like how relationship and not and I, I want to make the distinction not just the interpersonal relationships That's like right. you and me but relationship from sort of a complexity science like the relationship between things it's like how what what is power how do we decide things um what's our relationship to how things are produced you know who produces it how do people access it what's fair so it's not only like you and me hanging out, but it's also like, what are going to be the relationships between how we get the work of life done? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, is it that people, do we believe that naturally people should profit off of that or should it be a different kind of relationship? I mean, that's what economics is all about. And underneath all of that, 
right? At the core of it is what do we value? Mm-hmm. That's what makes an economy an economy, that we have these relationships based on what we value, right? Mm-hmm. In the current economy that most of us are in, we are told that most of us aren't that valuable, right? That things are more valuable than people. And that profit for a few people is super important. Mm -hmm. And that we should all defend that with our lives. Now that doesn't even make sense. (laughs) When you say it. Absolutely doesn't. (laughs) It absolutely sounds ridiculous. It is because it is ridiculous. But we got all these other weird stories, these other weird narratives, right? That's like, oh, you know, survival of the fittest. Rich people are smart. You, know? you deserve it because you're better. Right? Or you don't deserve it because you're black or you're this or you're that or you're or you don't speak English or whatever whatever story there is. So and there is this relationship between narrative and power, right? That narratives are designed well, dominant narratives are designed to reinforce and reify power. And power part of its goal, and there's different aspects of power that are important, like ideological and military and just all kinds of, you know, we have lots of understanding and people also talk about how like power with and power over, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty complex, but also not hard to understand. Right? I mean, so just because yeah. something's complex doesn't mean that it's, that it's, um, that you can't understand it. Right. Exactly. And even complicated stuff we understand, we navigate I mean, anybody who parents, anybody mm. who's in a relationship with another human being, anybody even who has a pet, you are navigating not only complexity, but complication. Mm. We're mm. smart enough. We're smart enough. Yeah. We're smart enough. I'm curious about what, you know, I love thinking about six-year-old Makani as an organizer, right? Like, I love this image. I was trying to think of a way to ask this question that doesn't make it seem like our younger selves were not knowledgeable, right? Because I want to stay grounded in what you said, like, in the moment, in the context, in the present of the past, right? We were working with that context, which is different than this context, But are there things that you learned along your journey that you're like, here are a couple of things like that. When I, when I look back over my shoulder, I'm like, Ooh, that was a learning. Oh boy. (laughs) Is there anything you'd be interested or willing to share with us about your 50 plus year journey in this? Yeah. Yeah. Of of course I'll try, you know, um, you know, earned wisdom, right? (laughs) So we're talking about, right. Earned wisdom. Yes. And yes. that is, um, and that's a beautiful thing. And in a different system, we wouldn't call them mistakes. That's what, that would be my vote for the reframe, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I also want to acknowledge my mother who always stepped out of the boundaries that, you know, people try to put on her. She is and was a meditator from when I was very young. She was and is a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda. So she had a different path that really, for us, it was a great example of 
what it means to live in the whole world and live in the world a particular kind of way that was not about limits. And I think in the beginning, I rejected it because, you know, Black had a certain kind of connotation and there was lots of things she did that didn't feel like it was quote unquote Black to me, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) When I was a kid, you know, she was in many ways a hippie. She didn't wear shoes. And it's funny because my hair is a lot like her hair, but at the time it just felt like it was just like all over wild and and, and this was like, you know, when people were straightening their hair and doing things or, or having Afro and her hair was kind of in between. And, and so I, I had a lot of narrowness, you know, and there was a lot of, I, I didn't know how to hold the, the both and at first. It took a while for me to get it. I had a lot of strident opinions. <laughs> okay. Right. And then I, I feel like, as I got older, the both and became super important. The willing to listen to people that I wouldn't have listened to before. And in this recognition, and my mother was really the first person who was so clear about our interconnection as human beings and with the planet. And I mean, she was the person who didn't want to use bug spray, who talked to the bugs and asked them to leave the house. I mean, she was just like that person before it was even a thing for folk to be into that. And I feel like the more that I accepted that, recognized that, felt it in my own being, the more it changed my organizing, the more it changed my work, the more it changed how I listened, the more I realized there was nobody that I could possibly be organizing for because our fates are so tied. There's no for. And so what does that mean? And sometimes it feels overwhelming. Like, well, what do, you, what do I do first? And how do I, you know, because if it's all, then what do I choose? But, mm-hmm. and I think that other recognition that you choose what you can and be accountable to what you can do. And if you're doing less than that or more than that, it's not good. And that also is a flow to be Ooh. present with it. That's a flow and that's a word. (laughs) So that's my look back reflection. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do what you can, not less than and not more than. Doing what you can is how you make that decision. Uh, I feel like that's a beautiful um, invitation for folks who are working in whatever ways that they feel like are transforming the world. And I think there's a lot of us who often feel like not enough in this work because what we're, what we're working at is so large, the way these systems make us ahistorical, right? Like it feels like, Oh my gosh, I'm just this idea of like pissing in the wind, you know, but if I, if I settle myself to be able to be like, this is what I can do. I'm going to do what I can believe that, and connect with others who are doing what they can, then I don't, I don't die on the, on the protest street, you know, by doing more than I can, which is also around ego. And I don't actually capitulate or I at least acknowledge and be aware of my complicity if I'm doing less than I can, right? Like we're really finding that. I, I believe that. And I feel like I should say one of the places where most of us do less than what we can is in our relationships in the movement that we walk away from each other so quickly 
and we act so fragile. And I, I mean, and I, I say that I do that myself sometimes. I mean, I feel like I get better in the practice, but there's so much work that we could do together. So in a much more effective and collaborative way, if we could just hang in, I mean, not with people who are like, totally, you know, like need some help. They might need to go to some re-education camp somewhere or something. Psych, I'm just saying, but you know what I mean? They might need some help. But um, sometimes we disconnect over some pretty small things, relatively speaking, when we think about the liberation of our people and the balance. And Mm -hmm. so I believe in by any means necessary. I do believe Mm -hmm. in that. But people always want to go to the most extreme thing. I'd be willing to spill my blood in the streets, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's good. But I, you know, I, I went to Fannie Lou Hamer's gravesite with two good friends not too long ago. And we were having this conversation about like, could you do what Fannie did? Mm. And mostly what people talk about is getting beat up. True. And I get that. And I'm like, but also the way she extended herself, the way she did things she was uncomfortable with, like singing in public or all kinds of stuff that wasn't her thing. And then she ended up making an album, right? Because <laughs> people were like, girl, yeah. you can sing. <laughs> and all these things. And, and so this thing about that it's not just about the protests or the march, but it's like, how are we willing to extend ourselves and heal and engage with people we don't necessarily like that much? Mm-hmm. because it will make a difference. It's the right thing to do. And, and we'll do great work together once we figure it out. Oh, thank you for invoking uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. In, in, in that line, there's a song leader here in New Orleans, organized activist Wendy Moore O'Neill, who always teaches the song, I Love Everybody, that's attributed to Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. And Wendy always opens it with like, all right, it's something for someone to be singing. I love everybody, <laughs> you know, and this idea of like Fannie Lou Hamer being able to extend not this, not a um, a rigorous, thoughtful, I love everybody, That's right? Like, right. I, I wanna, it's not just a, a random thing, but like, what does it mean in your core to be able to love inside the the work of transforming and love each other and when you say the thing that we sometimes don't offer, I think it's trust also for me. Yes. It's like trust is not just earned, it's offered. Right. You know, and, and how can we offer that to each other? Like how do we, what's the more we could do? And how can we, yes, to all of that. And I feel like the other thing I think about when I hold Miss Fanny in my heart and mind as, uh, as definitely a role model and inspiration and a teacher is how do you understand that you're just not that fragile? That we're just not that fragile. I'm just not as fragile as I might have thought. You know, mm-hmm. and I think there's something about when you decide that you're not fragile, that you can open your heart to things, that you can withstand things and know that you have a certain kind of control. Like this person mm-hmm. doesn't have the power to dissemble me. I'm not that fragile. You know, I can trust the person and they could like mess up, but it's not going to actually disturb my core, right? Mm-hmm. They're, yes. they're just going to be out of alignment with their humanity, but I don't need to join them, right? Like I can, I oh, can choose I a different that. path and I don't want to be, I mean, you know, I come out of a history that 
but people are pretty hardcore. And so, I mean, I know there's ways I'm, I have a certain kind of toughness to me from an experience that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But I do appreciate that I just don't get scared of things in the way that I may have been had I not had those experiences. And that I also know that, talk about pendulum swings, that's another place we need balance. We don't want to be too fragile, but we also don't want to be abusing people, right? Like we don't want to be like, you know, like, which is how in many ways, many people my age came up in the movement. Folks were like, well, you know, you just need to suck that up, handle Mm. it. I don't care what. And we want to be humane and compassionate. And again, remember that we're connected, that, Mm. you know, what people go through is what we go through and that we cut ourselves off from that empathy because we feel too fragile. People who can't watch the news or or hear about a thing, they're like, oh, girl, don't even talk to me about that. I just, I just can't make it. And I get it because it is hard to be a witness. It's hard yeah. to be a witness. But we also, in these times with so much going on, we are going to have to learn how to strengthen whatever it is we need to strengthen so we can be a witness to each other and for each other and hold each other when it's necessary without, I mean, feeling the things, but also knowing we can get, we can get through the feeling. It'll be all right. <laughs> I often yeah, credit my, my best friend, Shimonege, who sometime in the early nineties, I was at her kitchen table crying my eyes out over a relationship that didn't work. And in true fashion, uh, Shimmy looked at me and said, you do know a broken heart doesn't actually kill you, right? And when I say that has changed my life, right? Like that, that changed my life. I also want to know if she's Jamaican because that sounds like some Jamaican-ish right there. But <laughs> No, nah, she's from Mississippi. Hey, <laughs> also, yep, also sound like some Mississippi stuff. I love that. But I'm like saying, we've got a whole path, right? We've got a whole path and a whole way of being in a world where we learn how to be tough when we pay attention. And I love that. I mean, she's right though, right? When I say it changed my life, like <laughs> that sentence, I dried my tears. I, you know, and it's not that I don't feel, I don't cry, I don't do that, but it's like, it's not actually going to kill me. That's right. Right. Like I can survive it and I can learn from it. I can, you know, it just expanded my ability to extend exponentially and expanded what I believe is possible. Yes. I love that. I love that. And then, and this is what we know about possibility, right? What we know about possibility. And I know there's a whole theory that somebody invented, but we already knew this um, called the, you know, theory of adjacent possibility, but Uh, or the adjacent possible, is that the more possible things we imagine and know, the more possibility is born out the possibility and the more possibility is born out the possibility, right? Which makes all the sense in the world, right? Um, Somebody invents an airplane and someone says, I can make a faster airplane. And somebody says, I can go to space, right? You know, and, and, and maybe just literally 50 years before that, somebody was just watching birds fly, wondering, oh man, that would be cool if I could do that, right? And then bam. You know, or 70 years. The space is 70 years, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's right. And the other thing that many cultures have a version of the saying that people say in the South and all over as well is what they say, what don't kill you, make you stronger. Makes you stronger. That's right. 
right? So we've got a story. Again, we ain't trying to do things, make it hard and awful and all the things. You but, want joy. But yeah, have all the joy and know that we can be compassionate and not feel like we'll fall apart. We can be sad. We can extend our trust to people and they can break that trust and we can learn something. And, and, and also as an abolitionist, which I take very seriously, that we can also forgive each other. You know, people break our trust, they do things wrong. Then it's like, what happens if we don't throw them away? How do we teach people to step out of that, you know, racial capitalism and patriarchy that says, ah, oh, man, you messed up, you're no good forever. You know, that way of disconnecting compassion. Um, yeah. And it's a whole nother world when we do it. And I have seen friends, people I love. I have a friend who had an incident with her daughter that most parents would have been like going for blood. But they worked with the parent of the other person and created a container for, you know, for reparation, for healing, for engagement. They set the terms. And the two young people that were involved in that situation ended up so much stronger and so much more whole and really so much less shame, right? Um, because people came together and was like, this is us. We're not throwing anybody away. And I was, and that kind of courage and capacity to step into, you know, relationship, not knowing how it was going to happen, but being willing to risk for something higher. I feel inspired by that every day. And that happened years ago, probably 20, more than 20 years, 30 years ago. Yeah. And I'm still inspired by it. So on this note of inspiration and earlier you mentioned like you feel like we are more imaginative maybe than we've ever been. Are there like local, trans local, transnational experiments that you're seeing in the world that are inspiring to you now? Like are there experiments happening around change and transformation? You're like, ooh, I've been paying attention to that one right there. I think there's something. Oh yes. Now the question is, come on, memory. Um there's work here in Jackson that I love with the People's Advocacy Institute that is an experiment around folks calling in community people who care versus calling the police. That feels really beautiful, the way people love upon each other. And that extended into like a whole like recreation center takeover and some other things. Because, you know, when you hang out with people and you listen, then you're like, oh, yeah, that right there. Tubman Center for Health and Freedom in Seattle. I love them. They are just this amazing collective of folks who are creating this beautiful, holistic space that is like a people-centered health modality that's like all the things, right? Like they were talking to people about COVID. It was like a lounge. I, you know, you, you it's like mm. you were in the club, right? It's okay. like the music was bumping, the lights were low, the you know, it's like 
yes. it's like, what does it mean to reimagine how we care and care for each other and, and how we care for what ails us? That feels like a beautiful thing. Oh, gosh, there's, oh, gosh, that um, Feed and Freedom in Detroit with Mama Myrtle, mm-hmm. shout out. I feel like there's so many things, and I'm sure I'm about to mess up, um, but because there's so much, there's so much, yeah. and I feel so grateful. Let me just say this: that that I get to travel all over the place and just hang out with people and and work with folks who are thinking about exactly this and playing with these ideas. Like it's mm-hmm. it's the best. It's the best. It's the best. It sounds like it. So my, my last question, I hope I haven't hold you, held you too long, is what question are you holding for yourself? Like, what is what is the growing edge for Makani Temba in this moment? Oh, gosh. You know, this is so many. I literally write them on Post-its and put, it on my, and put it on my laptop so I can, so I can hold them. But, um, oh, gosh, which one? So one question for me is how we deal with issues of sort of like we talk about movement, genealogy and lineage and credit, you know, and I feel like the older I get, the more I wonder about legacy and I want to give what I think to the world and I want people to use it. And so I, I have a tension around because I see people like, well, I'm, this is my thing and I'm we're holding this. And I think, well, that makes sense in a way too, because people should know black women did that. And I, and I feel that even more with, after watching the documentary about Polly Murray, all the things that she mm-hmm. did that people just stripped from the story that are now being restored. And so I, I wonder about like this issue of like how we balance these ways in which we're generating and creating things together and we're learning from each other. And also like, yeah, in a lineage, you also say this is from so-and-so and this is from so-and-so. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure that out in, at my age, like, what does that look like for me and what feels uh, aligned with my values? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that's a beautiful question to be in. I, I often wonder, like, did Ella Baker know there'd be an Ella Baker Center, right? Like, I don't think that's why you do the work. That's not why. And part of a political praxis to me is naming, I heard freedom is individual and liberation is collective from Akani Temba, right? Like that, that is important for me to name, right? Like, I know that's just the one, one of the, one of the many things that sticks with me, but like how the body of, of what you've given your life to you know, um, gets held. And I, I want it to be held in a way that feels that holds the sacredness of what you have offered in, in your lifetime and that you feel that while you are alive. I wish that for you. I want that for you. And I want to be an agent and a participant in that for you. Ashe, and that I wish for you and really for all of us, right? So there it is. So many questions. I always have questions. <laughs> Look, we have a whole other season coming. Don't be surprised if we come back from round two. I can do this all day. And I'm sure you have some time. Akani, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm so grateful. It's always great to talk with you. Same here. 
So thank you all for listening um, so much to our conversation. If you like what you heard, spread the word about this podcast by posting and reviewing the conversation on the internet in real life. And you can find Makani on Instagram at higher as higher ground HG. I think it's higher G, but I'm hard. I'm trying to do better on Instagram, but definitely on Twitter. I'm trying to get it together though. <laughs> okay. Y'all Google Makani Temba, get with it. You hear it here. You know, follow this brilliant sister. So appreciate you all. So appreciate you, Makani. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Emergent Strategy Podcast. This podcast is produced by Mari Orozco, production coordination by Aliana Coelho, transcription by Hannah Pepper Cunningham. Music for the Emergent Strategy Podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riff Raff and their album, Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, you can make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.